My name is Eric. Uh, it's my privilege to serve as one of the elders here. And uh, you have on your seat, as Pastor Benoit mentioned, these, uh, these invitation cards. Um, hope that you are taking these and using these and inviting people. We all love to be invited to things. Uh, my family has been passing these all around and inviting people. And uh, not just at Christmas time, right? Invitations are great at all times of the year. Um, this being the end of 2019, we're almost to 2020. And what happens in Dubai in 2020? The Expo! Expo 2020 is upon us. Surely you can't live in Dubai and not be aware of the Expo because wherever you go in Dubai, whether you're on the metro or you're driving down the road or, or at the airport, there are signs and advertisements for the, metro, or for the Expo everywhere and they are inviting you. They're inviting everybody to come and see, come to this place and see. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was at a conference in France, and you would think that would be well beyond the reach of Expo 2020, but you would be wrong, because I was in France, and I was in this hotel room, and I, one morning I thought I'd look at the news, and I turned on the TV in the hotel room in France, and the first thing that comes on the TV is a commercial for Expo 2020 in Dubai. So not only here in the UAE, but even in France, they're being invited. The whole world is invited to come and to be in Dubai for Expo 2020. And I bring that up because I think that just like we have all of these advertisements that are inviting us to come to Expo 2020, I think Christmas time, the Christmas season, the festive season, to use the vernacular, the Christmas season is inviting us somewhere. We should see Christmas time and Christmas decorations and Christmas parties all as an invitation an invitation because, you know, we, we come from different traditions in relation to Christmas celebrations. Some of us have been raised in traditions where we say, you know, all these Christmas trees and Christmas cookies, that's all pagan stuff. We, we should not celebrate any of that. And some of us come from other traditions where it's like Christmas is a big party. It's an excuse to like have a lot of fun and to eat and to drink a lot and get as many presents as you can because Santa is, you know, going to make sure you've been a good boy this year. But see, none of the, 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 we, both of those views need some redirection. We want to look at Luke chapter 2 and see what Luke chapter 2 has to say about Christmas this morning. And what this text is going to do, it's going to, it's going to refocus us. It's going to sort of take our attention away from the decorations and the parties and the presents and, and help us get the right perspective on Christmas the right perspective is not to sort of selfishly indulge in all this stuff, and the right perspective is not to pridefully abstain from all of this stuff. But I think what this text is calling us to, it's calling us to see all of these reminders around us of the Christmas season as invitations, as invitations. And once we see these invitations in God's Word, I want to be reminded of them every time I, I see some lights or I eat a treat or I um, am around with, with others at Christmas time. It's all an invitation to something that God would have us see. So let's see in Luke chapter 2 three invitations of the Christmas season. Three invitations. The first one is an invitation to sovereignty. 
an invitation to sovereignty. So we, we read just a moment ago from Luke chapter 2. If we had gone back and looked before at the context in Luke chapter 1, we would have seen that God is preparing the way for this very special birth. And you know the story well of the angels appearing to uh, Zacharias and to, and to Mary to announce that, that this special baby, actually two special babies are going to be born. And so there's this feeling in the passage this momentum going into Luke chapter 2 that, that God is at work, that God is doing something after 400 silent years subsequent to the end of the Old Testament, now something new is happening. God is on the move. And so we come to Luke chapter 2, and he starts out with these kind of notes about Roman history. It says in 2.1, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world shall be registered. And, and let's dig into this a little bit. Let's dig in because Luke wants to, to show us something. He wants to root us in the, the history of these events. These things happened in real time, in real space, and in real countries with real governments. He wants us to see the, 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 the physicality and the historicity of the Christmas story. And so, so Caesar Augustus is on the throne at this time. And so we could, we could start this story in any number of places, but if we think just about 40 years earlier, 40 years before these events at Christmas time, we had a, the ruler over Rome at that time was Julius Caesar, okay? And Julius Caesar was murdered in 44 BC, the famous story, the Ides of March, all of his friends came around him and stabbed him in the back, literally. And so Julius Caesar was murdered in 44 BC, and so then his nephew, his appointed heir, uh, named Octavian at that time, came to the throne. And up to that point, for 500 years, Rome had been a republic. They all voted, and they chose their leaders, and they passed the laws. But see, Julius Caesar had started this process of, of claiming all of the power for himself. And so here comes Octavius. And he is, he's brilliant, and he's intelligent, and he's educated, and he's ambitious, and he uses all of these great abilities of his for one purpose, and that's to consolidate power around himself. He wants to become the most powerful man in the world, and he does it. He does it. And so under Octavius, the Roman Republic becomes the Roman Empire. He himself becomes the first emperor of Rome. He's the leader of the whole known world. And so they, in time, they come to refer to Octavius as Lord Caesar Augustus, which means he is the emperor who has the very attributes of God. And so Augustus rules over the entire known world. And so, of course, he can't personally oversee every part of the world. So he has all of these different territories. And each of the territories is ruled by a, a, a governor or a client king. Uh, this would be a king who's not really an absolute authority. He's like a, a secondary king, an assistant to the real king, who is Caesar. And so the main job of these governors or kings was to raise taxes, to send money back to Rome. And so they were to tax their populations as much as they possibly could to gather all these funds. And they would certainly put some in their own pockets. But then they needed to send money back to Rome. That was their main job. And so early in his reign, Augustus appointed Herod the Great. Herod the Great to be the vice regent over Judea. That province, Herod was called King of the Jews. And Herod was good at his job. 
Herod mercilessly pulled as much money as he could out of these people in Judea. He taxed them and taxed them and taxed them some more, and he made a lot of money, and he sent a lot of money back to Rome. So Augustus was happy with Herod. They had a a good relationship. Herod visited Rome several times, and Augustus gave him more and more power and more territory and sort of let Herod have a free hand to do whatever he wanted to do back in Judea. Augustus didn't need to get too personally involved because Herod had it under control. But so then, right as this story begins, about 30, after kind of 30 years of Augustus and Herod having this great working relationship and everything working out fine, this working relationship falls apart. And the reason why it falls apart is because basically Herod gets old and Herod gets crazy. He goes totally nuts. He's, he, he's this very paranoid guy, and so he becomes very afraid that people are going to try to kill him and, and take over his throne. And so Herod starts killing everybody that he thinks might pose a threat to him. And so he kills his favorite wife. He kills two of his sons. He kills basically anyone of importance in the kingdom. It's nothing for Herod to order the murder of babies in Bethlehem, as he does later. Just anyone who's in Herod's way has got to die. And so Augustus knew about this. Augustus was getting these reports back in Rome. Every so often, somebody would show up in Rome and, you know, and to Augustus and say, uh, hey, I'm, I'm Herod's nephew. Please, please save me. Give me asylum because Herod's trying to murder me. Or every so often, Herod would send a letter back to Augustus and say, okay, the crown prince I had before, never mind him. Here's a different crown prince now. I killed the last one. And so Augustus started to get the idea that things were not okay in Judea. He's starting to think that things need to change. And so Augustus, this, so we have this census, that, that, that there's a, a need for the registration of the people. What's that about? What's the census about? It's about taxation. Here's what's going on. Augustus is saying, it's time to be all done with Herod. We need to get ready for the next guy. And I've given Herod a free reign, but it's time for me to get involved. Augustus is, if you will, cracking open the books. He's saying, we need to know exactly how many people there are in this Judea. We need to know how much property is there. We need to know how much it's all worth and how much taxation we can get out of it. I've got to take a closer look at what Herod is doing in Judea. And Augustus did this at different times in other places. That's, you know, it says he did the whole world eventually in 2.1. But now it's time to do the census in Judea. That's what's happening in 2.1. So then meanwhile, in Nazareth, we've heard in chapter 1 about the pregnancy, about the virgin birth, that, 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 that this child is conceived in Mary of the Holy Spirit. And so as the, the weeks and the months go on, you can just imagine how miserable things are becoming for Joseph and for Mary. At some point, Joseph and Mary had progressed from this stage of betrothal to legally being married. It doesn't say that in Luke, but it does say that in Matthew chapter 1. Of course, they wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been proper for them to travel together unless they were legally married. And so in 2.5, she's called betrothed, but that's because they hadn't yet consummated the marriage because of the pregnancy. So they're newly married. She's pregnant. She's, you know, getting bigger as pregnant ladies do. Uh, the dates don't quite work along with the marriage. Nobody is, nobody, they're telling everybody, yeah, the angel appeared and virgin conception, all this stuff. Nobody's buying it. Nobody's buying it. The story doesn't seem 
plausible, and so life is miserable. People are talking. People are looking. When they walk around, they hear the, the murmurs and the whispers and the criticism. Much later in John 8, 41, Jesus is talking to some Pharisees, and they, the Pharisees say to Jesus, this is 30 years later, they say, you were born of sexual immorality. The fact that that was still being said 30 years later means it was a big deal at this time. That was the story. That was what people are talking about. Mary and Joseph are here in this small town. They're part of this community, and because of this pregnancy, they've been estranged from the community. The wedding party would not have been well attended. The comments in the marketplace were cruel, probably Joseph working as a carpenter. His work opportunities probably tried, they came to a stop. People figured they could call a different carpenter that had less personal drama going on. Um, so Mary and Joseph become more and more unwelcome. Maybe they were put out of the local synagogue. And so look at 2.3. In 2.3 it says that all went to be registered, each to his own town. Everyone's got to go home for this census. And so the text is clearly telling us, it's telling us that, that Bethlehem is Joseph's hometown. So somehow or another, Joseph got to Nazareth and met Mary, and they got married, but Nazareth is not his home. Bethlehem is his home. Joseph is an expat living in Nazareth, if you will. We can understand that, right? Uh, we, we know something about living in one place and having history and, and legal connections in a different place. That's Joseph's deal. And so as 2.4 makes clear, Joseph can't register for the census in Nazareth. Joseph has to go back to his legal home, which is Bethlehem. And so this census, again, it's about taxation. They, you know, it, it seems like if, if they're trying to raise money for taxes, Joseph must have had some kind of connection to a property in Bethlehem. It's likely that his parents or his grandparents would have owned some kind of land there. Maybe he's listed as the legal heir. And for that reason, he needs to be officially on the rolls in relation to this property in Bethlehem. So here's Joseph. He's going to make this visa run, so to speak. Now, Mary wouldn't have been required to go. Women had no legal status at that time. Mary could have stayed back in Nazareth, but Joseph had to go. And so they say, well, let's, let's both go together. Maybe here, maybe there's some kind of opportunity here. Things aren't going very well in Nazareth. And yeah, it's a hard journey, 150 kilometers walk, four days under good conditions. I don't know how long with uh, a pregnancy, but it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for them to maybe get a break from this horrible situation in Nazareth, an opportunity to find things in Bethlehem that are different. Maybe in Bethlehem they can find Joseph's grandmother or his auntie or his uncle or, or some kind of family member who's going to welcome them and, and care for them and, and give them the, the familial love that they haven't been getting in Nazareth. Maybe the scandal is not going to be known to everybody in Bethlehem in the same way that it has been in Nazareth. So Mary and Joseph resolve, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's go together to Bethlehem to register. So here's the background of this passage, and, and we can look at all of this history and all of this culture and realize that none of this was a surprise to God. God knew what he was doing, and God had put all of these things in place, not just weeks before, but centuries before. God had revealed through the prophet Micah in Micah 5.2, God said, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
From you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. God's saying hundreds of years before, he's saying, I'm going to send a ruler to deliver my people, and that ruler has to come from Bethlehem. And that's, and that's significant because not many people came from Bethlehem. It wasn't a place that a lot of people were from. It's not like the king is coming from London or from New York or from one of these great cities. It's more like the king is coming from Umalquain, you know, the, the backwater, the place where you don't know anybody from. But in Israel's history, there had been one king that came from Bethlehem. It was David. David was the greatest of all kings. And so in, in chapter 1, verse 32, Jesus has prophesied that he's going to receive the throne of David. And so there's this prophecy that God says, the one who is going to be in the line of David and is going to receive the throne of David is going to share a birthplace with David. So in order to make all of this happen, in order to see the prophecy fulfilled, God creates this perfect storm. This perfect storm, we have this corrupt tyrant, Herod, who's aging and going crazy and losing his grip on the kingdom. We have the most powerful man in the world, Caesar Augustus, deciding to step in and make this unusual policy move. We have these gossiping people in Nazareth, you know, having their fun and making life miserable for this young couple. We have Roman history, Judean politics, Jewish culture, Israel's geography, pregnancies and donkeys and due dates, and all of these things weaving together taxes and censuses and joy and opportunity and sin and sadness and pain and hope. And God weaves all of these things together and says, I'm doing something with all of it, with all of it. And so now, now at this point, now is the moment when after all these years and all these centuries and all these plans and all these people, now it's all coming together and God's plan is going forward and God's prophecy is being fulfilled and the king is going to be born in his place and now it all makes sense. See, what Augustus and what Herod and what the, the Nazarenes and what Marcus Brutus, what all of them meant for evil, God meant for good. God had a plan because this God... The God of Christmas is a God who's on a mission. This God is going to bring blessing to all the nations of the world, as he said in Genesis. God is going to redeem his broken creation. And not only can no emperor or no ruler or no boss or no neighbor thwart God's plan, they are by their very opposition unwitting servants of God's plan. And Redeemer... You're invited to this. You're invited to this sovereignty, to participate in the plan of this sovereign God because the same God who is at work in Luke chapter 2 is at work in your life too. The same plan for the nations that he's accomplishing here in Luke and then in Acts, he's accomplishing in your life too, in this church also. Do you see that? See, let Christmas be a reminder of that. Let Christmas be an invitation to that, an invitation to the reality that a sovereign God is working powerfully in the world and in your life today. Today. And see, as this year ends and as we sing the carols, there's a lot to be thankful for. But I know that in my heart, you know, the, the joy is not automatic. There's some sadness mixed in there, too. I think part of the, the burden of my heart is these street cats that come outside my window at nighttime and make all this noise while I'm trying to sleep. That's certainly part of it. But more than that, 
It's sin. It's uh, a broken world. It's being a part of a community where there is joblessness and chronic pain and complicated family problems and temptations. And, and just every day, hearing more things, seeing brothers and sisters in pain and suffering, just dealing with the just difficult problems of a broken world. And, and, and man, it's, uh, you know, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of not having a church building, of being here and, and being there. And, and it's just, you know, there's this question that keeps coming up is, God, why is this the way it is? God, you know, all of us here at Redeemer Church, we're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to grow. We're trying to fight sin. We're trying to make disciples. And God, if you just fix some of these problems, if you just dealt with some of these difficult people in our lives, if you kind of resolved some of these legal things here in the U.S., it would just be a little bit easier. God, why don't you make it a little easier? And see, don't you see that that's just how Mary and Joseph felt? Don't you think that they're asking these same questions? They're saying, hey, God, thanks for the angelic revelation about the virgin birth. Thanks for all these big plans. We really like that. But hey, don't you think you could send some angels to our friends and family as well? Would that be so difficult to do? Um, hey, God, why Bethlehem? Do we really need to do this huge journey at this point in the pregnancy, God? Is that really necessary? And, and you just think of all these people of Israel, and here they are already burdened with taxes, and they're saying, a census? Another census, that means more tax. It's not hard enough as it is. Herod is giving way to Augustus. God, where are you? Why are you letting these ha things happen to us? And the answer is, he's right there. He's right there. God is always right there. And what Mary and Joseph and the people of Israel saw as their discouragement and their pain is the very thing, the very thread that God was weaving into the tapestry of his big and beautiful plan for the world. And I remember... Uh, you know, I remember years ago, you, you all know my son Moses, he's five now. When he was born, he had this foot problem. And uh, so right when he was a newborn baby, they had to put these casts on his leg so that his, he could later walk properly. And a newborn baby casts on the leg. He didn't like it. He fought it. He cried. He protested. Uh, but his father had a plan. I knew that that's what had to happen for him. I loved him enough to take him through the short-term pain so that he could realize what I had for him in the future, realize this life that he's living now where he's walking and running and doing normal things in a way that he couldn't imagine. And see, we're reminded of that here. We're reminded that whatever pain you're feeling this December, what this Christmas story does, it doesn't give you this nice explanation that, oh, here's exactly why everything's happening. But it does remind you that your father has a plan. It invites you to know that your father's on a grand and glorious mission, and that in light of that, everything has a purpose. Everything in your life has meaning. You're invited to believe that this Christmas time. So you're invited to sovereignty. You're invited to be staggered by the knowledge of God, by the plan of God, by the, the love and care of God in this world. But this Christmas story, it's not only an invitation to sovereignty, it's also an invitation to shame. To shame. Look at verse 6. <clears throat> it says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
So let's see what's going on here. And, you know, sometimes I remember, like, when I was a child, and sometimes I got to be a part of the Christmas pageant. And, you know, I wasn't much of a singer, so I didn't get to be like Joseph or Mary and get the main parts. But, you know, I, I, I think that they saw that I kind of could do, like, the commanding voice and the mean face pretty well. So sometimes I got to be, like, the mean innkeeper, where I said, no room at the inn. You know, that was a good role for me. But... Um, but then, see, when you start studying this story, it's actually a little different than we see it. Because sometimes in those, in those plays, we have, you know, the, the, the donkey and Mary and Joseph, you know, on the donkey kind of coming into the town of Bethlehem. And it seems like right as they're coming in the city, like it's like time for the baby to be born. And so Joseph is going like from one hotel to the next. Is there room? Is there room? Is there room? And like, no, no, no. And so then they end up in the stable, Right. But see, we got to correct that a little bit. That's not exactly what's going on here. First of all, I don't think she gave birth right away. Notice that it says, while they were there, the time came. So it seems like maybe they had been in Bethlehem for some time, and then eventually it was time. They probably weren't dumb enough to go on this big trip in like the ninth month. So they were there, and eventually it's time for the baby to be born. And you know what the text doesn't say? It doesn't say there was a cruel innkeeper who denied them entry to the room. In fact... In fact, you know what? There was no hotel. There was no inn in Bethlehem. Beth, that was not a thing at that time. They hadn't invented it yet. Bethlehem, it had no Rhoda Albaston. It had no Jamera Creekside. Bethlehem had, had no Marriott, no Lemuridian. There was no Chief Butch in Bethlehem. Uh, they, they didn't have these things. You know, hotels were not yet invented. If there, there may be, you know, if there had been any kind of public lodging house in Israel, they would have been in the big cities where a lot of travelers come along the main roads where a lot of people are passing through. And Bethlehem was not that. Bethlehem's out of the way, small population, off the main road. People just wouldn't have come there very often. It was not on TripAdvisor's list of the most Instagrammable cities of 5 BC. Okay, so it's out of the way. No hotels, no inns. And notice it says in verse 7, it says there was no place for them in the inn. That it says that in my Bible, inn. But the thing is, the thing is that word in Greek, and you know, not to, to make a big deal about a Greek word, but I guess we will, is that this word, it's the word kataluma in the Greek. It doesn't mean inn. That's not the meaning of the word. There's a different Greek word that means inn. Uh, that, that other word is used in Luke chapter 10, talking about the good Samaritan. He puts the guy up in an inn. It's a different word. There is a word for public lodging house, but that's not the word in Luke 2. So what does that word mean? What, what's our word in 2.7? Where did they stay? Well, I'm glad you asked. That word kataluma, it means guest room or spare room. It's not like a separate hotel. It's part of the house. Part of the house. And if you imagine the architecture, you know, they didn't live in these like big fancy villas like you do, uh, these nice flats on the high rise, you know, any of this kind of stuff. They had these very small dwellings. Normal people would have lived in maybe in, in one room. And so they would have, you know, the animals, they weren't in like a separate barn somewhere. Animals often were inside the house because they're valuable. You can't have them stolen or, or anything like that. So maybe it's a big room. Half, you know, front half is where the animals are. The back half, maybe there's a raised platform. The people spend time there. They lie down, sleep there. And then maybe if it's a little bit bigger house, there would be a doorway and there's this extra room back there. 
The extra room would be the place where you would put the, the honored guest, the, the person who's come to stay, the person from out of town, because in this culture, they had an expectation of hospitality. If there's no hotels and no you know, public places, where would you stay when you were traveling? And the answer is you would stay in the home. There was an expectation that people, if a stranger was traveling through, then any person had a, a cultural obligation to put that person up, to give them a place to lie down, to give them food to eat. That was a normal part of the culture. And so if that kind of hospitality was expected toward strangers, how much more toward family? Remember, Mary and Joseph aren't going to Bethlehem as strangers. They're going to the place where Joseph is from. Surely they had the expectation that they would be given help and given hospitality by a loving family. They had to stay somewhere. Surely they would have stayed with Joseph's grandparents, with his aunt, with his uncle, with his cousin. Somebody there is related to Joseph. So why is it, the text wants us to ask, why is it when it came time for Mary to give birth, why was there no place for them? Why was there no place in the spare room? Why wouldn't you take the the pregnant lady who's about to give birth and give her the best place in the house? Why is she down over here with the animals? It's asking us that. Why is that? Could be the home was crowded. Could be, you know, too many people live there to begin with. Maybe, you know, other relatives had traveled for the census and there's a big kind of a scene. But why didn't they make room? Why didn't they give her the best place? Why weren't they celebrating and welcoming this baby who was to be born? Wouldn't any family give this, this family member who from out of town the, the place of comfort, the place of respect? And the answer is no. They wouldn't do that. They, they, they couldn't do that because of the shame. The shame. See, some of our cultures understand this better than others. In ancient Israel, you know, they were a shame culture. Wrong behavior is like a disease. It's like a disease. It brings dishonor upon you when you behave wrongly, and it brings dishonor on those who are associated with you, who are seen as approving of you. And so in a culture like that, if I behave wrongly, if I step outside the boundaries of correct behavior, it's your job as someone who knows me to sort of visibly demonstrate your disapproval of what I've done. You have to punish me. You have to hurt me. You have to repudiate me. And if you don't do this, my shame isn't only on me, but it's also on you. And it spreads to the whole family and the whole community. I remember there's this this, uh, classic Hindi movie, came out like in 1950s, called Mother India. You may have seen Mother India way back in the day. Uh, Mother India is this story of the life of uh, this poor woman. So over many decades, it kind of starts with her marriage and proceeds for 30 or 40 years through her life. And she's living in a village, and it's a hard life. She suffers many things. She's oppressed by this evil money lender in the village who kind of gets financial control over her and just makes her life miserable in every possible way. And this woman along the way, she loses her husband, and she loses a child. She loses her farm. She nearly starves several times. So it's, it's, there's just a lot of bad stuff in the movie. And, but she perseveres, and she's got this fighting spirit, and, and she has these sons, and she loves her sons, and she wants to survive and make it through all these obstacles for the sake of her sons. But then there's a, the climax of the movie comes when, when the sons grow up, and one of the sons, he's just, he's just fed up. He's all done with this evil moneylender and how he's treated his mother badly for all these years. And so now that the son's big, he's going to deal with it. So he goes to see the guy, and there's a fight, and the bad guy ends up dead. He's shot dead. 
And so I saw that, and I was like, yeah, that's how we do it in Texas. You mess with my mama, you're going to get the same thing, right? But see, in the movie, there's, there's this twist, and it's uh, kind of a different perspective on what's happened there. In the, in the movie, the young son, he's done something horrible. He has murdered somebody who, you know, somebody of affluence and influence, somebody of a higher social level than him. And, and in the culture of this village, he has he is stepped over the bounds. He has committed a shameful act. And so what happens then is he, he kills this bad guy, and then he gets on his horse, and he goes back to his mother's house, and he's, you know, he's happy, you know, he's kind of triumphant. He's kind of saying, hey, mom, look what I did. I, I saved you from this, from this bad guy. And so the mother comes out of the house, and instead of embracing her son and hugging him and thanking him, she pulls out her rifle, and she shoots her son dead. She kills her son. And then the movie ends, and what it ends with is this mother who has killed her son being shown great honor Great honor by everyone in the village because instead of sharing in his shame, she preserved the honor of her people by killing the son who she loved. This woman is Mother India. And this still happens. You know, I met, I met a brother from Nepal a couple of weeks ago, and this brother had come to Christ from a different religion, and he said that, that, that since he became a Christian, his father has, has tried to kill him on five different occasions. He's like on the run, in hiding from his father who is actively trying to kill him. And it's the same thinking. It's not just that the father is angry, but it's because this is the way that, that he's been shamed, and this is the way he can keep his family and his community from even greater shame is by dealing with the source of the shame. And so back in Bethlehem, we have this, this same kind of dynamic at work. The issue isn't no room in the inn. The issue is no room in the in the family. No room in the family. No one in the family believes the story about the virgin birth. Everyone to a man believes that this is an illegitimate child. This child is a shameful birth, the product of sin. There is no compassion in Nazareth, and there is no compassion in Bethlehem. For Jesus' family to accept him would have brought shame to them, and they couldn't accept the shame. They couldn't take the shame of this baby. The baby wasn't worth it. So they said, no, sorry, Cousin Joseph. We're all full over here. No place of honor for you. You can take your baby mama over there with the animals. That's where you can go, Joseph. You brought shame to us. And so this is how the king comes into the world. He comes in shame. He comes in disgrace. He comes already being lied about. And of course, as you know, Jesus' earthly life would end in the same way. It would end with false accusation, with slander, and with lies and rejection. And so Mary and Joseph then, in this Christmas story, Mary and Joseph were the first ones to learn that this is not a usual king. This is a strange king, and knowing this king has a cost... It has a cost because before they knew this baby for five minutes, before they held him in, in their arms for their first time, knowing Jesus had already cost Joseph and Mary absolutely everything. It had cost him their, their home, their reputation, and their family. They lost everything for this baby, and that's the path of following Jesus, isn't it? That's what it means to follow Jesus, that you share in his life, 
You share in his teaching, you share in his gospel, and then you also share in his shame. You share in his shame. And see, in some parts of the world, that, that shame has always been there. That shame has always been very visible. And they say, you're a Christian, you're a fool. You know, three gods and corrupted manuscripts and Western religions, all these lies that you have to own if you follow Jesus. In other parts of the world, we, we forgot about the shame for a while, but it's on the rise now, and, and, and it's becoming more shameful, and people are saying, you're a Christian, and you're, you're a bigot, and you're hateful, and you, you don't love people. Again, it's not true, but who's checking the facts? Some places, Christians have always been on the margins of society. Other places, they haven't been, but they're now being pushed to the margins. And see, friends, that's not an accident. That's not an accident. That's all part of the plan, the, the sovereign plan, God's plan, because God has this mission, and on this mission, God doesn't work through the powerful. He works through the weak. He doesn't work through honor. He works through shame. And so the invitation, the invitation, we, we see it in Hebrews 13. In Hebrews 13, 12, it says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. He's outside. He's unclean. He did that in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. Here in this place where people do this shame and they disrespect Christ and they disrespect the gospel, that's not our home. We don't have a lasting city here, Hebrews says, but we seek the city that is to come. And so Christmas, this Christmas... It shouldn't only be a time of parties and feasting. It should be for us a time of sober reflection, of, of counting the cost of knowing this king. And so this Christmas, you're invited to that. You're invited to, to come and share in the shame and in the reproach that belong to Jesus. Is that what you want? Is that the present you want this Christmas? Knowing this baby, it is a gift but it's the kind of gift that has a cost. It's the kind of gift that gets you the, the hate of the world, sometimes the, the hate of the professing church. It's the kind of gift that gets you kicked out of the family reunion. It gets you holding your baby alone in the garage. So Christmas is an invitation to sovereignty, but it's also an invitation to shame. And those two mix together. They go together in these incredible and powerful ways. But what I want you to see finally, the third invitation I want you to see why it's all worth it, what it's all aiming toward, why living under sovereignty and in shame is the best way to live. And that's because Christmas finally is an invitation to salvation. Christmas is an invitation to salvation because look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he, has, uh, he is pleased. So the king is born. 
The king is there. The king has arrived. He's in the major. And, and who gets to hear about it? Do they send messengers to Herod the Great? Do they send a ship to Augustus and let him know there's a new king on the horizon? No. How about the shepherds? This group of shepherds, and, and shepherds, speaking of shame, they were pretty far down on the respect and honor status scale. Shepherds are peasants. Shepherds were on call 24-7. They weren't able to keep Sabbath because of the nature of their work, so they weren't there in the temple, in the synagogue. They tended to be covered in sheep dung, so they were ceremonially unclean. Religious people did not have dealings with shepherds. This was not a group you would entrust with important news. They were seen as dirty, as untrustworthy. Mostly, you know, these are the people that as you just, you know, decent people are going about your business, you just look past. You kind of walk past them, you pretend like they're not even there. They're part of the scenery. That's how they thought about shepherds. But see, in God's sovereignty, this shameful birth is first announced to them, to the shepherds. And if you were making this plan, this is not how you would do it. This is not how you would plan things. Whatever the the best place in the world is to announce a king's birth, it wouldn't be Israel. And if you were going to do it in Israel, the best place in Israel wouldn't be Bethlehem. And if you had to do it in Bethlehem, the best place in Bethlehem wouldn't be in the sheep field in the middle of the night. This is like a major world-changing announcement being made at the bus stop in Fujairah at 3 a.m. It's out of the way. But this angel appears. So the angel appears, and, and by the way, he's probably not hovering with his wings. The Bible doesn't say that angels have wings. That's made up. He's probably standing on his own two feet like you and I. And, um, but, but, but the angel appears, and, and it's frightening because the glory of the Lord is visible. This angel is, 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 is communicating the glory of the Lord. This is the Shekinah. This is the fire and the cloud that led the Israelites in the wilderness. This is the manifest presence of God. It's being revealed now. It's been absent. The glory departed in the book of Ezekiel. It's been absent for hundreds of years. But now here's the glory. The glory is being seen. The visible essence of all that God is is being made visible to these shepherds. And of course, they are terrified. You would be too. So the message is, fear not. Fear not. See, you you can see this glory. You can be in the presence of God, but you don't have to be afraid because of this baby, because of this king, because the message is that they are bringing good news, good news. And we hear that so much, we forget about this whole Jewish worldview behind it because this this worldview is a, a world of their thinking in which God is the creator. God owns everything. Everything belongs to God. God graciously rules over people for their good, but then the world got broken when Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and that's why the world is today. That's why there's suffering and death and slander and rejection, because the world is broken. So then the prophets of Israel living in this broken world, writing in a time when the brokenness was especially pronounced, when it seemed like all hope of salvation was gone, when it seemed like maybe God had even abandoned his people, the prophets said, all was not lost. All was not lost. We read earlier from Isaiah 52. That's printed in your bulletins. And um, let me just read there. So look at that in your bulletin if you have it. Isaiah 52, verse 7. Isaiah says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes 
salvation, this, this bringing good news in our Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word that's being used in Luke chapter 2. It's the idea of proclaiming truth, proclaiming the, the gospel, as we would say. In other words, these shepherds lived in a day of darkness, a day of sin, a day of brokenness. Isaiah's people lived that way too in this broken world. But Isaiah's saying, it's not always going to be this way. It's not always going to be so dark. It's not always going to be so broken because the prophet is saying that one day there's going to be good news again. One day it's going to be possible to speak of peace. It'll be possible to think of things being brought back together the way they should always be, to speak of things as they were created to be, of happiness and of joy and of salvation. The prophet is saying that that day is coming. That day is going to come when the Lord returns to Zion. And in that day, it says in Isaiah 52, verse 10, it says that in that day, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The whole world is going to see God as a savior, that God is going to be the one who delivers his people from darkness, from brokenness, from cynicism, from the punishment they deserve for following anything besides him. And then here, 700 years later, here's an angel appearing with the glory of God to a group of shepherds and telling them, that day has come. That day is now. That's why the angels make this announcement. God wants there to be no mistake that this baby is from him, that the story of this baby in Bethlehem is connected to the story that God has been telling his people for thousands of years. And this baby is the focus of that story, that the day of good news, the day of happiness, the day of peace and salvation and joy, that day has arrived when this baby has arrived. A savior has been born. And throughout the Old Testament, God is known to his people as a savior. God delivers people from distress, from affliction, and, and other gods aren't like that. Other gods don't save. In the Old Testament, we've got Moloch and, and Baal, and, the, and they make fun of, uh, of Baal for his indifference to his people. Remember, Elijah says maybe he's like on holiday, or maybe he's gone to the washroom. Uh, they had Moloch, who's hostile and cruel to his people. Uh, those gods don't save. Those guys don't save, and God's people worship today, they're not any better. We have people of different religions, and some religions worship these silly little gods that have little fights with each other and have little problems like humans do, and those gods don't save. And other religions have these big tyrannical gods that demand all this stuff from you and don't give you anything back, and that kind of God doesn't save either. And sometimes in our lives, we make our own little gods who also cannot save. We make a person a God and we give ourselves to a relationship and we hope that this relationship will save us from our pain. We make technology our God when we think that the latest device is going to make us happy and, and kind of solve all of our discouragement. We make money our God when we think that, our, you know, that, that, that if we just focus on money and getting more of it, uh, then we'll be happy. But none of those things save None of those things are saviors. None of those things can deliver you from your sin, from your pain, from your disappointment. None of those can fix what's wrong with you. None of those can forgive where you've transgressed. None of those things are saviors, but this baby is. This baby is the God of the Bible, is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. He has come to save his people. He's come to be the deliverer. He's come to save because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And because of that, there's great joy. There's great joy this Christmas time. 
And see the contrast before? There was great fear, but now there is great joy. Why? Because of who this baby is. Because the world rejected him as a bastard in a barn, but the heavens declared that this is the Lord. This is the Lord. He's the Savior sent from God as the only hope to forgive those who are sinners. He is the Lord who reigns over all. In verse 1, Lord Caesar Augustus wanted to register all the world because he wanted the whole world to benefit him. But Lord Jesus came into the world to die so that he could bring all the world great joy. And he's born for you. He's here for you. The invitation is for you and you and you and you. For for all of you, that is who the invitation is for. And see, maybe you've heard this message. You've been to Christmas services and you've heard about the baby all of your life, but you've never come to the place yet of saying that I, me, myself, I am a sinner. And I myself need help. I personally need a Savior. And and I trust that, that Jesus Christ, the baby born in the manger who later would die on the cross for sinners, that that he is my substitute, that he took my sin, that he rose again, that he is my Savior, that he is my Lord, that I am willing to turn from everything else that I'm holding on to and follow him alone. See, some of you have been in these Christian households and you've heard this Christmas message, but that's never happened in your life. You've never followed this Savior. You have never been saved. You've never experienced salvation. And so you have never known the great joy that this passage is talking about. And to you, I say, don't let this Christmas go by like that. Don't let this be another Christmas that just goes by and more songs and more presents. But no, see the invitation this Christmas. The shepherds came away from this experience inviting others to come and to see. And I say to you today, I say, come and see. Come and see. We've just scratched the surface this morning. Come and see who this baby is. Come and learn while he's changed the lives of so many. Come and read what he says about himself. He wants to bring you great joy this Christmas. So come and see. Come and see, and if you are a follower of Jesus, if, if, that, if he has changed your life and your heart so many years ago, you say, I don't need an invitation to salvation. I say, you do. You do, but maybe in a different way. Because I invite you too, Christian, this morning to see what the shepherds saw. To see that the one who was born in the manger, he was born to save you. And that whatever else is true in your life right now, this week, this morning, whatever it feels like is going wrong, that this is there, and this is true, that a Savior was born for you. So keep looking at that. Keep remembering that. Hold on to that this Christmas. Don't stop until you're marveling in the great joy and until you're singing with the angel chorus, glory to God in the highest, and don't stop until, like the shepherds, you are going and telling others of what you've seen. So this morning I gave you this invitation to sovereignty, to see that God is at work, to see that he's accomplishing his great mission, even in the pain of your life, then an invitation to shame, to know Jesus by walking with him outside the camp and bearing the rejection of men. And finally, an invitation to salvation, to see and to delight in the fact that Jesus Christ is the Savior and to make that salvation known to the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who is the Lord. Father, I pray for those in this room that have not yet yet followed him. May, May today be the day of responding to the invitation. 
For all of us, Father, may we walk this Christmas season in the glorious joy of the salvation that you have invited us to in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.